the reason that I'm here uh, at Summit, New Jersey, uh, is because your rector asked me to come and give a talk to the vestry uh, about a, a book that I had written, and that he thought, well, since he's already here, he might as well preach too. So, uh, so I'm doing both things. But my main reason for coming was to talk about this little book that I, that I wrote uh, last year called Augustine's Relic, uh, Lessons from the Oldest Book in England. And we're going to see some pictures, I hope, shortly <laughs> of that oldest book. Um, but I'll tell you the story about how I got interested in this. Um, uh, I am, as I think you know, I'm, I'm the Bishop of Arizona, and I've been bishop there for uh, almost 14 years now. And I've been a parish priest before that. But when I originally started out thinking what I wanted to do in life, uh, I wanted to teach. And I particularly wanted to teach history, and I particularly wanted to teach medieval history. So I'm sort of a medievalist by training. I have a doctorate from Cornell University. Um, and uh, so I've always been interested, even though doing things in the church, I've still been interested in, of course, uh, historical things, and particularly manuscripts. I've always loved being around ancient manuscripts and old books and like to go to rare book libraries just to smell the books. You know, they <laughs> have a great smell to them. So uh, about um, hmm, 2008... Uh, I went to a, a conference in England called the, the Lambeth Conference. And you may have heard that term before in the Episcopal Church, the Lambeth Conference, because uh, it's, it's a, a gathering of all of the bishops from the Anglican Communion at the invitation of the Archbishop of Canterbury. It's called the Lambeth Conference because when the archbishops first started doing this, oh, 150 years ago, they would meet at Lambeth Palace in London but now it's too big because there are about 800 bishops in the Anglican Communion that come to this. So we met at the, at the University of Kent, which is, uh, um, you know, could accommodate all of us. And one of the things that we did before the conference started, oh, by the way, I should say that, that bishops really like to go to the Lambeth Conference. Uh, the main reason is because we get to have tea with the Queen. <laughs> now, they don't tell you that you have tea along with 1,500 of her other closest friends, but still the idea of get, getting to go to Buckingham Palace and, and sort of at least get close to the Queen. Some people got chosen to actually meet her, but we all got to see her, and that was, that was very nice. So um, before the Lambeth Conference started, um, uh, we had the opportunity to visit some local diocese and get to meet the bishops there. And I already knew I, where I was going uh, before the conference started because I have a very good friend who is the dean of St. Albans Cathedral. Uh, St. Albans is about 25 miles north of London, and he and I have been friends for 35 years, and he's my, uh, he's my son's uh, uh, godfather. So when we were, when we were visiting at St. Albans, uh, the bishop of St. Albans thought he would organize some trips for the visiting bishops to go and visit things before the conference got started. And one of the places that he took us was to Cambridge University, uh, to Corpus Christi College in Cambridge University, where there is something called the Parker Library. The Parker Library, we're going to find out, was started by Archbishop Parker, uh, who was an early Archbishop of Canterbury and is a repository of many documents uh, that, that are related to the history of, uh, of, the, of the Church of England. And I'm going to show you some pictures of that, I hope, <laughs> shortly. 
How are we doing over there? <laughs> so, um, uh, the librarian uh, of, the, of the Parker Library, whose name is Christopher de Hamel, uh, came to meet us and he took us into the Parker Library and he said, okay, everybody out, the, the people that were working there, said, all, go, you all go to lunch. And he got a big table and he put out all kinds of uh, ancient manuscripts. There were for instance, there was a, a, a Wycliffe Bible, there was a Celtic Bible that dated from the 8th century, uh, there was, um, um, gosh, what else, Laura? There were, oh, the, there were letters from Henry VIII to Anne Boleyn, uh, uh, letters from Martin Luther, letters from John Calvin, and we just got to pass these around, and somebody said, well, don't you have to wear gloves? And he said, no, no, it, just be careful, but so we passed them around, and of course, as, as a medievalist, uh, I was just beside myself. And uh, uh, the other bishops were kind of wondering when, the, when lunch was going to be served. But um, I, I had a great time. Here we go. So let's go to, the, let's go to our first slide here. Um, leading up to looking at this very special book. So when we, when we, Oh, the other thing we got to look at was the books, the, the, the trial of, um, of Thomas Cranmer and his ex the, the cost of his execution, the bill from the executioner, and what he had had to eat before he was burned at the stake. And he had salmon. <laughs> so it, there are all kinds of very interesting things. And, and, then, and then Christopher de Hamel said, well, since you're all bishops, I don't usually bring this out, but I want to show this to you because I, I think you would enjoy it as bishops. And what it was is a, a, a manuscript that you can see it there uh, that is... Um, he explained to us is the oldest book in England. Now, it doesn't mean there aren't things like, you know, Egyptian stuff and Roman and Greek things in the, in the British, and British Museum and so forth that are older, but this book, as we're going to learn, came to England in 596, and it's been in England ever since. So it's the oldest book in England. It's the oldest non-archaeological object in England, and it is the gospel book that was given by Pope Gregory the Great to St. Augustine of Canterbury when he came to re-Christianize England in 596. It is an English national treasure. It's the, sort of the equivalent of uh, uh, almost on the level of our constitution uh, is now in a, in a vault and not many people get to see it and on rare occasions, which we'll see one of those in a minute, it's brought and taken to where it needs to go in an armored car because <laughs> it, is, it is such an important part of English history. So if we go to the next slide, here we go. It's a very important manuscript for other reasons as well. It's not only the oldest book in England, and I told you the association with, with Pope Gregory. Um, uh, it's used at all the consecrations of the new archbishops of Canterbury, and we're going to see it contains the oldest picture of Jesus and the Last Supper in the world. So for all of those reasons, it's a very important manuscript. Next slide, please. So let's talk a little bit about, uh, about Pope Gregory, who had uh, so much to do with this. Pope Gregory, uh, great for many reasons. He was a wonderful administrator, which always gives me hope that you can be an administrator and a saint. <laughs> uh, and he also, some of you may know, does the name Pope Gregory, do you associate that with anything else that you might have in church today? Any, any musicians here? 
Gregorian chant, okay? He was the one who invented Gregorian chant. Um, and there's, uh, he was very interested in, in uh, sending missionaries to, to all parts of the ancient world. And there's a story that if, if any of you are English, you, you learned in, in, in school. It's a kind of the English equivalent of George Washington and the cherry tree story. Uh, and that is that Pope Gregory uh, was visiting the slave market in Rome and he saw these blonde-haired, blue-eyed boys who were slaves being sold. And he said, what, who are they? And somebody answered, and he said, they're, they're angly, which is where we get our word, you know, English from. And they're, they're Angles, they're angly, they're Germanic tribe people. And he said, making a little play on words, he said, non angli, said angeli, they're not, they're not Angles, they're angels. And we need to send people to convert them to Christianity. So he started planning about how he might do this. The next slide. So he asked a, a friend of his who, who was a monk, Augustine of, of, later known as Augustine of Canterbury, to take a group uh, and go to what is now Great Britain and to, in a sense, re-Christianize it. There had been Christians there under, uh, after the Romans settled England, uh, but they had been driven out by these pagan tribes known as, collectively as the Anglo-Saxons and Jutes from England, and they were a pretty uh, fierce, scary bunch. And I said this morning, if you've ever seen that ad uh, for Capital One about what's in your wallet, remember those, those big guys with the, with the skins and the horn helmets and stuff? Those are, those are like Anglo-Saxon. Think Vikings, the same group, basically. So pretty scary uh, pagan group of people. And um, in fact, they were so scary that Augustine sets off on his trip from Rome to England. He gets scared and he turns back because he hears how horrific these people are, and he has to go back, and Pope Gregory gives him a little talking to and a pep talk and sends him off again, and this time they make it. They land uh, on the British coast that's a little ways from where Canterbury is now. He is met by uh, King uh, Ethelbert and his wife Bertha. Now, Bertha uh, was from France or from Gaul, and she was already, she was already a Christian. So the ground was already prepared a little bit, uh, but Augustine was uh, welcomed by Ethelbert, although Ethelbert was afraid of his, his, his magical powers, and so he refused to meet him indoors because he was afraid he might cast a spell on him and had to meet out in the open air. But eventually Augustine won him over, and uh, next slide I think is uh, he, was, he was baptized, and thus the, the conversion of England, uh, uh, reconversion of England began. There were already Christians that were over in in what's now Scotland and Ireland and Wales, but they've been pushed over there uh, by these invading Anglo-Saxons. So the next slide. So Augustine brought with him, of course, the things that he needed for his mission, and he, one of the things that he brought with him was this book that we're going to talk about, a Corpus Christi Manuscript 286. Uh, it's written on parchment, of course, in Latin, uh, and it's mostly intact. There's part, little bits of it missing, but mostly intact after 1,500 years. Next slide. So uh, that's what it looks like. There's my hand in the picture. And um, we're going to talk about this picture up here in a, in a minute. Unfortunately, there were, there were originally a number of pictures, pages that had pictures on them, but all but two were cut out, probably at the time of the Reformation but the pictures that are left are, are worth looking at. Next slide. 
Uh, here is where the library, is, where it lives now. It lives at the Corpus Christi College uh, campus in, in, Ox in uh, Cambridge, rather, um, uh, at the Parker Library. And it's just been moved within the last 10 years or so to a, a temperature-controlled, secure vault underneath this library. It used to make the librarian very nervous because it was kept up here in the shelves where undergraduates were allowed to study and some of them smoked. <laughs> so he's very relieved that the manuscript is now in a much safer place. So next. So there's me uh, with, with a book in front of me. I didn't have to wear gloves and, and I spent three days uh, with, with the manuscript. Um, the, the other graduate students that were there were said, oh boy, they don't bring that out for just anybody. So I think, <laughs> I think maybe a bishop got me access to that that might not have happened otherwise. Um, but I just look, I looked through every page, and of course I didn't, have to, I didn't have to read it, I mean I know Latin, but I knew what the text was. I just wanted to spend time with the book and kind of be in the, the, the aura, you might say, of this, of this very uh, important book. So I was privileged to spend uh, three days in the library with it. Okay, next. Well, why, why is it so important? Why is this book important? It's not only important historically, but I think it has many themes or, or, or might be seen as a symbolic um, reminder of what the church is all about. Uh, first of all, it, it is a symbol that our faith is founded on mission, right? Because it was, a, it was an object that was used for missionary work. It, it, it reminds us that we need to use technology to help spread the gospel. I'll come back to you think, what's this ancient manuscript have to do with technology? Well, actually, plenty. We'll come back to that. And that we should embrace our connection with the ancient church and that our goal uh, is unity of purpose with all Christians. I didn't talk about that before, but in 2010, when, when Pope Benedict XVI visited England, the Archbishop of Canterbury had this book brought out that they could both venerate this book. Of course, it was written in... Rome, about 560, uh, and then sent to England. So kind of a symbol of the unity that we have with our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters. So next. Well, that's why it maybe plays this role in the consecrations of the new Archbishop of Canterbury. That's Rowan Williams. I didn't have a, a picture of uh, Justin Welby, but he did the same thing at his consecration, took his oath of office on this ancient book. Next. So mission, we, you know, we hear mission used a lot, uh, that term. Um, we thought, I like to say that in Arizona we have a mission-driven diocese, but most of us when we hear that word mission still think of a kind of a 19th century idea of mission. You know, uh, missionaries wearing pith helmets, going to darkest Africa, uh, not only converting people to Christianity, but also making them have only one wife and wear pants. That, you know, the, kind of the cultural or colonialization idea. Uh, uh, going to uneducated uh, pagans. But in fact, the next slide, the Great Commission. Anybody remember what the Great Commission is? Does that term sound familiar? Last part of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus gives us his last words before he leaves the disciples. Right, And the Great Commission says, Go therefore unto all nations, teaching and baptizing them, that's the Great Commission. Those are Jesus' last words to us. Now, it's interesting that his, his first last word to us is go. <laughs> Many people in church think that Jesus' last words to us were sit. <laughs> so 
But they're not. They go, go therefore to all people, not the ones you're comfortable with, but to all people, no matter who they be, teaching them and baptizing them. And Jesus says, and I will be with you always as you do that, even to the end of the age, even to the eternity. So that great commission makes it pretty clear that our mission field is to share the good news. We talked about what the good news is at church at the early service. You'll hear this a little bit later, so I'm going to spend a lot of time on it. But to share the good news with everybody, particularly the people that are outside these four walls. We forget in the church that the mission of the church is to serve not us, but the people who are not here yet. Okay? Now, I know that's a very revolutionary thing to say, but we've forgotten that, and that is the basis of the church. That's why the church exists, and that's the only way that the church will grow and, and, and flourish is when we remember that our job is to bring into this fellowship those who are out, outside of it, not just to make ourselves happy or kind of have the kind of music we like or comfortable pew that we might design for ourselves, but to bring those other folks, folks in. I used this quote this morning. Um, our, the, one of the former archbishops of Canterbury, William Temple, in the 1940s, said that the church that lives for itself dies by itself. And that's really important for us to remember. And I think a book like this reminds us of the importance of mission. Next. Sadly, most churches, including our own, spend far more time and money. And I'm not picking on you, but you're like every other Episcopal church. You look at your budget. What do you spend most of your money on? Yourselves, right? Keeping the, supporting the institution, paying the light bill, paying the staff. Um, but when we get too wrapped up in that, we forget that our, that our mission is not to maintain the institution, but to spread the gospel to the world that's hungry to hear about it. And that, that kind of lack of purpose results in decline. Next. When we remember, however, uh, th that, that great commission, not only what our purpose is, but remember that Jesus is with us always, even in this hard task, then we can accomplish fantastic things. And you think about those 40 monks and St. Augustine going up against those big girly guys, those Anglo-Saxons, and that was the beginning of the Church of England, which has spread throughout the world and now includes about 80 million people, all from originally from the efforts of St. Augustine many of those many years ago. There's a picture of Canterbury Cathedral. So are we up to Augustine's example? Well, the world's hungry for our witness, uh, and being missionaries is the only way our church will grow. That requires everybody's part participation, and our, our mission is not to foreign peoples necessarily. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that, but basically to the people that are right outside our doors. Remember that Pope Gregory was smart enough to realize that, that the church needed to be on the edges. Okay? So he sent missionaries to what in his day was the, was the edge of the earth, the scariest, most distant place that he could think about, and that was England. Uh, for us, we're not so much called, I think, to send missionaries overseas, but to be missionaries to those people around us, particularly the forgotten groups around us. And I think you can think, who are some of the marginalized people even in your own community? Top of my list are youth, are often for, kind of forgotten about by the church. You don't see a lot of youth in church, right? The church has done a lousy job reaching youth and children. Um, 
in my in my neck of the woods, it's it's folks from uh, from um, Hispanic uh, immigrants are a forgotten group. It could be people that are um, been have been uh, uh, sexual minorities that are, uh, have been forgotten about or or, or or put at the margins. And those are the places that we need to be. That, and I think that Gregory Pope Gregory teaches us that. Next. Okay, technology, you may wonder about how this old book is, tech, is technologically important, but in its day, these little illuminated pictures that he put in were the cutting edge of technology. And the Anglo-Saxons, they had wonderful uh, uh, metallic art. They were great jewelers, but they had no paintings or drawings in their culture. So for Augustine to bring his book and open it up and say, look, Here's a picture of Jesus. That was mind-blowing for them. That was like, wow. That was as technologically revolutionary as our looking at an iPhone today. It was a complete sea change in the way that people were able to talk about Jesus. They didn't just hear about Jesus now. They saw him. Our manuscript contains the oldest picture of, of the Last Supper. Look at that next. Here it is. You notice anything about, about this picture of Jesus and his disciples that might strike you as a little odd or different than what you used to? Now remember, you're looking at the oldest picture of Jesus in the Last Supper in existence. What's different about it? It's what? The table's round, okay. That's maybe a little bit. Huh? What about Jesus? He's clean-shaven, why? Anybody know? Why, why, would Jesus, why, why in Rome in 560 or so would Jesus be portrayed as being clean-shaven? Exactly, exactly. A Roman, a, 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 an upstanding Roman gentleman would be clean-shaven because the same word for barber and beard is the same root for barbarian. If you were a beard, you're a barbarian. So, clean-shaven Jesus. Next slide. Now, so this has implications for us because the church is not doing a really great job when it comes to embracing technology, particularly communications te technology. Um, we sort of we kind of blew it at other uh, other times in our history. We really blew it with television. We the church never used television in a way that could have been used. So now we have an opportunity to say, well, we're we going to do better when it comes to social media, and uh, not so great. We're not doing so great with social media as a church. Doing better. I know you have a great website. I looked at it before I came. But most churches could do a whole lot more with the technology that God gives us. Especially the wonderful thing about, about um, social media is that it's free. And let me just give you an example. If you had, let's say you have busy Sunday here at Calvary and you uh, have 400 people come to church. Okay? And they go home. The average person has 200 friends on Facebook. And you go on your Facebook account and you say, went to church this morning and it was great. Do the math. How many people are going to hear about it? Come on, mathematicians. 8,000, all right? Do you realize how expensive it would be to have advertising that would reach 8,000 people? And the Facebook is free. Now, does that mean all those folks are going to run in and say, oh, they're going to be in church next week? No. But they're going to hear about you, and those seeds are going to be planted, and they often will share that with somebody else. 
And they say, well, you know, I have a friend on Facebook who goes to this church and they think it's really cool. So it, it is, is a fabulous tool. It's a, it, and it's the best gift that God has ever given the church is, so, is social technology. Remember, uh, social media is word of mouth on steroids. So anything you can do to increase your web presence is important that you do. We talked about the, that with the vestry yesterday, so they, they're on it. <laughs> Next. Um, social technology. Average teenager sent, spends, uh, sends 300 text messages a month. Uh, a, a, a preacher, if, they, if you post your sermons, I know Father Matthew does, more people are reading his sermons online than are to hear, to hear them. And probably, uh, interestingly enough, well, I won't get into that. Let's take us off our <laughs> course. Uh, 80% of people looking for a church first search the web. Somebody's new to town. Forget, forget newspaper ads. Forget uh, ads in uh, yellow pages. They're worthless. The thing that people are going to go is they're going to look on the web to see where they want to go to church. And yet only 20% of churches have an up-to-date, attractive website. Yours has, you have a fantastic website, although I gave the folks this in the vestry some tips about how you might make it even better. <laughs> okay. Next. Continuity. Matthew Parker, I mentioned him before, the Parker Library. He was the first Archbishop of Canterbury uh, after the uh, English Reformation, and he was a scholar that who he wanted to show the continuity between the church before the Reformation and the church after the Reformation. And so he assembled all of these books in his library, which he eventually gave to the college where he is, was master, Corpus Christi College, and one of the books he saved was the one that I'm talking about, Manuscript 286. Um, so uh, he, he wanted to show that the Church of England was in fact the apostolic church and that the Roman Catholic Church were the ones that were out of sync with the apostolic church. So that's why he saved that book and we're glad that he did. Next. This has, this has uh, 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 implications for us too because it shows that Parker thought that, that continuity was important and I think this is one of the strengths of our Episcopal Church is the fact that we are deeply rooted in the ancient practice of the church. We, we offer ancient solutions to modern problems. You know, that uh, we, uh, in Arizona, we have a lot of Mormons, and I always tease them. I say, you know, uh, our church is 2,000 years old. How old is yours? <laughs> you know, we didn't just make this stuff up because somebody thought it was a good idea. We have a tradition that's 2,000 years old, which is based on the apostles. And that that tradition strangely enough, is quite appealing to the unchurched. Let's look at the next slide. They, they like um, ancient practices that we have now in the Episcopal Church, more now than we used to. But um, you can I just listed a few of those. Chant, incense, labyrinth, meditation, icons. Uh, unchurched folks, nuns, N-O-N-E-S, love this stuff. Um, give you an example. The um, Cathedral of St. Mark in Seattle their biggest service is a Compline service that they have on Sunday night at 9.30. Now, that's past my bedtime, so I wouldn't be there. But at 9.30 at night, they have this uh, service in the big Gothic building, lots of candles, no talking. It's all Gregorian chant. They have usually over 1,000 people every Sunday night. And they're all young people. And they come and they lie on the floor. They bring pillows, and they, they listen. They enjoy this experience of transcendence. Now, Episcopalians, we do this stuff really well if we market it well. We, we, we do these things, right? And they are very attractive 
to younger folks, millennials, that even though they wouldn't identify themselves as Christians, they're very interested in this. So it's a great strength of ours, this continuity with the past. Next. And then uh, unity. I was, uh, mentioned about the, with a, uh, unity with the Roman Catholics before. I've, I've noticed that my Roman Catholic friends are saying, we need to become more Protestant. We need to know more about the Bible than our people do. We need to study the Bible more. And my, my Protestant friends are saying, we need to be more liturgical. <laughs> you know, so there's this sort of cross between the, between the two. Um, uh, let's see how we're doing on time. I just t- that, uh, that little story I was going to tell you. Uh, I have a, a cousin who uh, start, uh, helped start a new church. Uh, it was one of these sort of you know, evangelical uh, independent churches, and he was the music guy for it. And he's a very smart, thoughtful young man, and he, he was always telling me about uh, how well this new church was doing that he started. And so I'd ask him about it, and every year when I saw him and during the summer, I'd say, so, Michael, how's new church going? Oh, it's going great, great. You know, we, we've, we, we've increased our numbers by tenfold. We, we hired a new pastor, all this kind of stuff. And then a, a few years ago, I said, so how's the new church going? He said, well, we closed. And I said, really? I said, what happened? He said, well, the problem was that we didn't have any sense of how things really ought to be, and everybody wanted to do their own thing, and they just were fighting all the time. And, and so we had to close. And, and people left, and we had to close. And he said, we discovered that we could not do without a past. We could not just say, well, we're just going to invent a church, and it's going to keep everybody happy. There was no, there was no continuity. There was no tradition. There was no discipline. And the, they went out of business. So we need those things. So next slide. Um, great symbol of our, uh, oh, I, I think I have this picture here next. Is, that's what it is. That should be underneath the picture. There's, there's uh, Pope Benedict XVI and Rowan Williams, and that's Christopher de Hamel, the librarian at the Parker Library, with the book that I'm talking about in the box. And they're both, uh, they're both kissing the pages of, of that gospel book. So next slide. What, so what can this old book teach us today? What are the lessons? Uh, the need to rediscover our purpose and mission of a church. The, the oldest book in England is a gospel book. <laughs> Remember that. Uh, that we must use all the means and technology that God has given us to spread the gospel. That our ancient heritage is one of the, uh, our important strengths as the Episcopal Church and very attractive to people. And that we are united in this task with our brothers and sisters, uh, such as the Roman Catholics, for example. So ne- I think next and final slide... Uh, the, the, one of the other pictures I just wanted to end with. I, 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 when I looked at this picture, next one, yeah. Uh, this is this is Saint Luke. This is the cover page for the section of Saint Luke. So there's Saint Luke, and over top is the ox. The, the traditionally, the uh, each of the gospel writers has an animal symbol assigned to it. But I just thought that um, that when this artist in 560 was drawing this, could he, most likely he, ever have imagined the impact that that work was going to have? That how it would influence millions of people over the course of history and that we would be looking at it today using, a, using technology that he would have never even in his wildest dreams imagined. And 
to me, that gives a, gives me a sense of we are part of a great story. Uh, and, and those words of Jesus, to, I will be with you always to the end of the ages. We're part of this great story of spreading the gospel to the, to the, to the world, not in foreign countries necessarily, but right here where we are. We are those agents of transformation that are, that are remaking the world and remaking history. And it's an exciting place to be. I hope that you, that you as Episcopalians feel that and what you have to offer as Episcopalians at this moment in, in history. So um, that's the oldest book in England, and I hope that uh, it, it can continue to teach us uh, some good lessons. Thank <laughs> you.